Parinita Shetty and you're listening to the fourth episode of Marginally Fanish. In this episode, I talk to Alison Baker about social class and cultural capital in the Harry Potter series. We introduce our individual class backgrounds in different British and Indian contexts. We chat about how literature and media perpetuate singular narratives about wealth in both India and the West. We discuss the class connotations of boarding schools, sports, accents and jobs in both the magical world and the real world. We wonder what the cost of education at Hogwarts is. We explore how bad educational spaces, hello Hogwarts, disadvantages certain students. We talk about the class implications of freely accessible public scholarship in alternative sites of education. We also discuss the gender dynamics in both online and offline fan spaces. We love the way fan fiction encourages us to question the way things are. We talk about the different reactions to male interests and female interests in fandom. We chat about the gender politics of fan fiction and the differences between male and female expressions of fanishness. We end the episode with book recommendations for children and young adults. for those who are uncomfortable reading the harry potter series due to rowling's recent problematic declarations happy listening i'm so thrilled to welcome so- alison baker on the podcast today i first met alison at a children's literature conference in dublin and then again at a science fiction and fantasy fan convention in london where she was one of the excellent people in charge of organizing the whole thing so we both have academia and fandom in common yeah. and also yeah and we're also both harry potter scholars and yeah and that's largely what we're going to be focusing on today so just to give you a little bit of information about her alison is a senior lecturer in education at the university of east london and she's also writing her phd thesis about white working class children in children's fantasy fiction and i can't wait to read that thesis when it's done it sounds amazing uh she has 10 years experience of teaching on undergraduate and postgraduate teacher education programs and she's also taught in early years primary and special needs settings in both london and yorkshire and she is likely to explain that the weasley family have considerable cultural capital in harry potter's world with the slightest provocation whether at a fan convention or not i am very excited to hear all your thoughts about class and capital in harry potter and in fandom and the ways in which this intersects with gender but before we go there do you want to briefly introduce your own experiences with social class yeah sure i would count myself as a lower middle class person my uh, my mother's parents were factory workers my dad's dad was uh, a sort of very minor um civil servant he worked for the inland revenue and i grew up in a uh, area of um Hertfordshire southwest parts which is just outside Watford and I went to comprehensive school and I am the first woman in my family to go to university and complete a degree my mum did a teacher training qualification but she never did a degree and so a lot of what I experienced at university was extremely alien to my mm. my lived experience and certainly when i first 
started going into fandom, um, it was very much university-based fandom. Mm. who I met all seemed to already know each other I'd gone to a college of higher education not a university it is a university now and everybody there in fandom seemed to be so much better educated than me so much cleverer than me and they all seemed to know each other and it was a very male dominated space in particular very male STEM dominated hmm. so everybody there that I met they were early um, internet adopters in the 90s I didn't have a computer I'd never grown up with a computer I, I felt very very alienated and I also experienced sexual harassment in fundraising hmm. spaces and um, one of the things that's so wonderful to me since coming back into fandom because I went away for 10 years it was just too awful Um, when I came back one of the most wonderful things is firstly how how much more diverse fandom is those people I was first encountering are much more now the older fans younger fans don't put up with that kind of stuff as much and while certainly some spaces in fandom as I'm sure we will discuss can be extremely toxic and very alienating for women. By and large, the fandom circles that I move in are much more intersectional, much more aware of white privilege, Mm. um, male privilege, and the privilege of the able-bodied versus people with um, physical and mental disabilities. And uh, what... I do think class privilege is very much still there. It is getting better. That is something that I love. It's really important to me. For me, I've seen that as well because my experiences with fandom have largely been online. So I've learned so much in fandom just through access to these diverse perspectives that otherwise I wouldn't ever have encountered. Mm. In terms of class, it was only when I moved to the UK that I really realized the different contexts of class in this country as compared to my experiences in India. So in India, I grew up lower middle class, which in India is very different. It has a very different connotation here in the UK. In British terms, I think it would be working class, perhaps upper working class uh, in a single parent household. So my mother owned the house that we lived in, but uh, so we didn't have to worry about housing. But we definitely lived quite precariously in terms of her salary. So there were some weeks where we couldn't afford proper food and she had to scrape together the tuition for my undergraduate education. She doesn't have a degree as well. She really wanted to, but she had to drop out because she had to work and earn some money. And she had to borrow money a lot while I grew up. But it's so contextual because in India, I know that there are so many people who are so much worse off than I ever was because I grew up in a big city. I grew up in Mumbai. So, you know, that comes with its own associated privileges. But I also knew people in Mumbai who were a little or even significantly better off than me and never have had to worry about money. So I've grown up without a lot of money and that has really influenced how I see the world now. And how I engage with money. And in India, I think a lot of people, including me, have this monolithic perception of the West. 
where in the US and the UK in particular because both countries have such a hold on our imagination yeah. and we have this idea that western countries are extremely prosperous and you know people don't have the problems that we have with money and poverty yeah. and it was only when i moved here to the uk and spoke to people and read and educated myself that i began to realize the different kinds of systemic economic problems that exist and it's really helped me see both the uk as well as india in different ways yeah and i i think conversely i mean i know that conversely we have in britain in particular something i have a lot of problems with in our primary education in particular Mm. is that we do see uh you know obviously when we see india on the news it tends to be when there are problems yeah so for example you know with the rioting going on at the moment and we did see a lot um about the um uh, delhi rape case gang rape yeah. case and things like that uh, um but we also do tend to see India and other developing countries through charitable way yeah. looking at things so like we think of everybody as being very poor and of course while there is huge poverty in India there's also you know there's people who live very comfortable lives and also people who are, aren't extremely wealthy you know we we tend to forget there's a middle class yeah and i suppose the culture and media and it perpetuates this idea so much like in india it perpetuates this idea of the west and in the west it perpetuates this idea of india and other mm. developing countries like you know what the dominant narrative is and yeah. especially with things like literature and media where this privileged group like this middle class upper middle class um mm. uh, groups usually tend to create media so we have a very singular narrative almost because in terms of my understanding of the west was largely shaped by the literature that i read so poverty isn't really addressed except like maybe jacqueline wilson books like those are the only books i remember reading uh, in the west that dealt with poverty in any real sort of way we're talking here about the dangers of a single story aren't we that yeah. uh, that i know that you've discussed um a couple of podcasts ago that's right yeah but this is also a feeling that i have or this is not part of the hypothesis of my thesis is that actually we don't see working class characters in british children's literature very mm. much and when we do it is through social realism like jackie wilson who i think is amazing Yeah. um the research that i've done with um student teachers is that a lot of my students who define themselves as white working class women jackie wilson was so important to them growing up reading books about girls like themselves yeah how important that is theoretically this is rudine sims bishops the window the mirror and the sliding glass door absolutely as so, well totally seen them yeah this made me think of harry potter what you're saying that in realistic fiction it's present mm-hmm. but not so much in 
fantasy fiction. Yes. And in Harry Potter, I know that you can read Muggles and Muggleborns as well as House Elves, and mm. you can read it through a racialized lens. But I yeah. think you can also read it through a class lens as well. Uh, coming yeah. from a lower class background, they lack access to the resources and knowledge that children from visiting families really seem yeah. to take for granted. And, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is really evident. You can see it very much in the Deathly Hallows books, where Ron's insider knowledge is important, but also the fact that Hermione has had to research. She has the intelligence, but she doesn't have the cultural capital that comes with being from a, a, a wizarding background. And of course, Harry, to an extent, also likes that. I mean, he is the sort of the eyes of the reader. We Mm. see everything through his perspective because it's a limited third person narrative. We need to have that perspective of um, someone who's explaining to us all this stuff that we can't see. Right. And uh, with Harry, it's something that you mentioned in your paper, which I linked to in the transcript, as well as in which, please, they mentioned that even though he's been disadvantaged, so he comes from uh, an impoverished background with the Dursleys, but he's actually pretty privileged in the magical world because he has inherited so much wealth and valuable objects. Yeah. The Marauder's Map, his invisibility cloak, Hedwig yeah. as well. Like, he's still pretty privileged in terms of class as well, because he doesn't oh, have to worry yeah. about money. Yeah, he's a lost prince and he's a jock, you know? Yeah, he's, that's true. He's not, yeah in, in, the, in the muggle world, obviously, which is sort of not really a mimetic world, because in the real world, we don't, have, unfortunately, we don't have magic. Mm. But the world that J.K. Rowling privileges, which is in the magical world, he is an enormously powerful character. He's naturally good at Quidditch, which is something that gives him a lot of cachet in the school. He is wealthy. Um, He has all of these people around him telling him how awesome he is and how important (laughs) he is. So. In that world, he is incredibly important. And actually, the, the, the character that is the poor and maltreated character is, is Neville. Yeah, I, that's yeah. true. So, you know, in, in the wizarding world, while he comes from this old wizarding family and therefore has a lot of cultural privilege, he isn't wealthy and he is sort of, weedy and a bit nerdy and pretty rubbish at a lot of things and so he's kind of the foil to Harry's success Hmm. but sorry go on oh I was also really interested so in the witch please I've been listening to a few of their podcast Mm. episodes and they talk about how Filch and Stan Shanpike and even Snape to a degree in his non-Hogwarts avatar are sort of examples of working class or lower class. So yeah. In the wizarding world, their status is pretty 
and the way the narrative positions it it positions some, some kinds of working classes for example the weasleys they are always shown to be as poor or they're said like everyone talks about their poverty but they have a lot of like you said cultural capital yeah they're landed gentry they're mm. not poor um and i think this is where people reading harry potter from from countries where there is a lot of land and land is not necessarily expensive like mm. outside cities in the us land is is not expensive mm. it's hard for people who don't understand that we don't have a lot of land mm. we're a very small country and so land is actually extremely expensive so any family that has a you know a house with six or seven bedrooms i can't remember how many bedrooms yeah house has that has a paddock and an orchard are not poor in <laughs> I mean that that's that's land that's going to be worth maybe around a million pounds. You're so right, yeah. and that's something I never even thought of. Like when I was reading it, so as an Indian reader, I miss a lot of class signifiers that you yeah. know it, that a British audience would probably recognize. But even as an Indian reader, because of I guess my own experiences with not having a lot of money, the Weasleys seem to be doing pretty all right to me. Like the father, <laughs> Mr. Weasley, has this stable job, doesn't have to yeah. worry about getting paid on time. They all seem to have enough food and clothes, and you know, I was. like what are they complaining about is this the idea of poverty in the west like, yeah. yeah and also you know having your brother's hand me downs at school is is a very very big advantage yeah um, yeah you know i mean ron is teased for it and some of his stuff is you know his wand is a bit rubbish and and so on but it does save a lot of money for the weasleys to to have older brothers who can pass things on and the knowledge that is passed on to him yeah absolutely this is really helpful to him you know and there's other forms of privilege as well i mean i i was very struck when rereading the philosopher's stone that the animals that that children are allowed to take to school in the first book they're allowed an owl a cat or a frog mm. no rats but somehow one <laughs> gets to take a rat to school so there's got to be some kind of privilege going on there as well that he can bend the rules a bit that's true he knows what rules are allowed to be yeah. pushed and what not and yeah that's yeah. true it's like people from a working class background or in, in india like a middle class up below middle class background we don't know this we don't have this possibility that we can imagine because these possibilities don't exist for us right so no. we don't know what's possible and what's not yes you don't you don't know which rules are the really really important rules and which rules are the less important rules exactly times or you don't know the workarounds for I, it and and that's the kind of cultural capital and the cultural privilege that ron's family have yeah absolutely and also like even just with boarding school the class connotations of boarding school yes. which i only realized again after moving to the uk because 
in india uh, we have like when i was growing up and me and my friends with similar sort of financial background boarding school was this thing that our parents threatened us with when they were like oh if you're bad you we're going to send you to boarding school like it was this form of punishment for us and at the same like we didn't think of the cost and you know all these other factors because even in india boarding schools are pretty elite usually like they're you know for the sort of a wealthier sort of person but I grew up reading Enid Blyton school stories like the Shelley school as well and Mallory Towers so for me I had this romantic notion of boarding schools but they're actually so expensive yes a long to go to boarding school as a child it just felt like you know reading the books it, it seemed like so much fun yeah I grew up reading comics as a, a very small girl I learned to read through reading comics really. And um, my favorite comic was called Bunty. There was uh, a long running serial in Bunty. I'm really showing my age here. Um, <laughs> which was called The Four Marys and it was about four girls all called Mary who went to boarding school and every week they had an adventure. You know there was something amazing like catching a smuggler or I <laughs> or working out that what seemed to be a ghost in the bell tower was actually you know the boyfriend of a maid or something like that <laughs> and they would be just sounded brilliant to me I, I thought that would be a wonderful thing to do go to yeah. well, absolutely and, and, me too yeah but funnily enough the research that field work that I'm doing in school at the moment the children that i've been reading harry potter with um they're 10 and 11 they don't want to go to hogwarts they think it sounds awful oh really yeah but i think it's partly because they haven't grown up reading boarding school stories for one thing and for another thing i think it's also a social class issue for them one of the boys said to me he didn't want to go to Hogwarts because they play quidditch and he plays football so i th- i think that's a way of him explaining how he feels he wouldn't fit in at Hogwarts that's so interesting because another thing was something that i took for granted is cricket which yes. in in india cricket is very much a common person sport like we play it in the street and you know be, just because of colonization i guess we've just inherited yeah. our love for the game and whereas when i came here so my boyfriend he's scottish and he for him football is the common person's game and cricket is this elite sort of thing where you need all these it's for a posh sport essentially yeah. quidditch i think is has a lot in common with cricket but also it's like polo and you know because you've got to have a broom you've got to have the space and i mean i grew up playing cricket on the street as well you know we would have stumps chalked on a garage door yeah, and yeah you know, we would i would oh, bowl and bat against those also i think it's um the weather <laughs> you know we don't we don't <laughs> yeah. have the you know the long summer days without rain are, are quite unusual <laughs> yeah um, i have noticed <laughs> yes And so football is 90 minutes. You can run around in the rain for 90 minutes. It's not necessarily pleasurable, but it's doable. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, all you need in order to play football is a ball and two things that you have decided are goalposts, mm. which were where I was growing up. It was usually someone's gate. That was the goal. Yeah. So we used to play the road, um, you know, with houses on one side of the road and the houses on the other side of the road, and that you'd kick the ball and try and hit someone's gate. And you'd <laughs> Usually get shouted at. That really makes me wonder whether so in um the Gailey Prophet episode, uh, they mentioned that Stan Shanpike, his accent had re- had class connotations yes, just does. because of the way that it was written. And this is not something I would have ever picked up on. His and Hagrid's as well. Yeah. Hagrid's is more regional. And they yeah. proposed that Stan Shanpike hadn't gone to Hogwarts uh, because nobody in Hogwarts speaks like that, which made me wonder, does Hogwarts, like, is there a cost of education to Hogwarts? Would they charge tuition, boarding, food? Like, is it all free? Who pays for this? I know. It's very odd because do you remember the, the character of Colin Creevy? Yeah, yeah. Because he bounces up in a very unsubtle J.K. Rowling way says oh blimey Harry I'm Colin Creevy and my dad's a milkman oh and, yeah that's right but then again that's a British thing you know I don't know whether an American or an Indian person uh reading those books would know what a milkman was but it's a traditional working class job mm. as is Stan Shunpikes working on public transport is yeah. a traditional working class job and so um, maybe there are working class people at Hogwarts. We don't know whether there's tuition fees paid because Harry never gets a bill, does he? That's true. But yeah. then on the other hand, he has so much money that, well, actually, no, we, I mean, we know a lot about his financial position. So maybe if there is a tuition fee, we would know about it. But oh, even if there isn't any tuition fee, you still have to buy so many things like yeah. books and cauldrons and all these things. So even if you don't have to pay money to exactly. be educated, you still need all these things that yeah. a person who has like a lot of gold and gringotts won't have to worry about. Absolutely that. You, you have to buy everything, don't you? You have to buy your robes. You have to buy, I mean, in Britain, you know, People have to buy school uniforms. There are very limited situations in which there would be a grant to help extremely impoverished. No, India is the same. We have school uniforms as well. And I, my mom had enough money for uniforms. Like that's not something that I had to think about. But I know there were people in my school who, so I went to a Catholic school, which in India, it's called a convent school. And that's essentially for people from lower middle class and middle class uh, backgrounds who want their children to be educated in good English. Because English was also such a status um, thing. And it's still a status thing in India. Because they think the nuns teach us good English, which again, lots of colonization things yeah. run back there. Another thing is Draco Malfoy and Dudley Dursley. Yeah. Just in terms of, so they come from like privilege and status. So 
So yeah. that's very evident. So they bully Harry and they bully people all around yeah. them. But they also have these overindulgent parents. Yeah. And they undergo abuse and trauma of a different form than the one that Harry goes through and come through at the end of the series more empathetic and more i suppose respectful of different ex- maybe not respectful yeah. but at least understanding of different experiences yes i mean the, the malfoys live in malfoy manner which yeah. again that they have inherited land we know that lucius malfoy is extremely connected to the government yeah um, and definitely has a lot of social capital the dursleys on the other hand are nouveau riche mm. so they're kind of newly arrived into sort of the upper middle class but are not accepted yet so again this is something that british people would pick up on particularly british people my age because mm. i'm in the same age nearly the same age as J.K. Rowling I think she's a, a little bit older than me hmm. but the, the very socially conscious or class conscious sitcoms of the 70s and 80s in particular in the Chamber of Secrets where uh, uh, Dobby turns up and ruins the dinner party that Petunia is trying to give to her husband's boss and his wife yeah a very very that very very class conscious uh that's social climbers and wanting to sort of elevate themselves the way the decor is described is very much kind of a, a nouveau riche decor and compared to sort of the old money uh aristocracy of the weasleys and mm. then shabby but comfortable house yeah because the, the way uh, that i think in the witch please episode i think or was it the gaily prophet one but they said they noticed a comparison between yeah. the burrow versus the dursley's house and how in the movie it was witch please in the movie no. they showed it in such a like this was stark and boring and it looked like the same house that everyone yeah. else on the suburban streets whereas the burrow was welcoming and warm and uh, yeah. you want to live there and it uh, an idiosyncratic it's not mm. the same as everyone else's house and so uh-huh. yeah it's, it's not being bought off the peg you know it's something that has been inherited and added on to um, have you ever read any georgette hayer yeah but, yeah yeah so the way that the the houses of the aristocrats in you know the, the sort of the old houses in particular a civil contract the house in that that has started off as a kind of a Tudor house, but then a Stuart bit was built onto it, and then a Queen Anne bit was built on, and yeah. then you know another bit was added, and so it's a big hodgepodge of building styles, mm. and uh, you know it's got long drafty passages, and it's very inconvenient, but you know the family love it, and they will do anything to preserve it. Yeah, and yeah, just that, even that, having that, a house that, that you don't have to worry about like being kicked out of or not yes. affording rent. Yeah. That's surely that elevates you above poverty. Like oh, so much. Yeah. <laughs> In the books, class is mentioned only as a way of 
good versus bad like positioning good uh, wealth versus bad wealth yeah. harry's own wealth is really passed a lot without commentary really it's not it's presented as and even in like um in the witch please thing that they mentioned that so the malfoys they are a representation of bad yeah. well whereas harry yeah. is this he's calm and he is you know uh, liberating house elves whereas the malfoys they have house elves but yeah. harry Liberates Dobby, and you know he's nice to creature and stuff eventually. But he doesn't really try to append the system of house elf slavery at all. No. Like he's not. There's no radical uh, measures in his idea of class. Yeah. I guess yeah. he doesn't challenge it in the way that Hermione challenges it. Although I think Hermione goes about it in a very white feminist way. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she tries to trick the house elves into becoming free by leaving a little knitted hats and scarves around the place, and that's really wrong. And also, she's not she's not, not their master, so she can't slate she can't free them anyway. Also, so she, she, this is what? something that we spoke about before, and it's something that I've been listening to in the podcast. That she doesn't have any conversations with them. Like it's never about what they want, and if it when they do express what they want, which is like they don't want to be free, she just assumes this attitude of oh no, you don't know your own lives and stuff. Yes. I know better, so I'm going to come and I'm going to liberate you. There's no attempt at trying to raise awareness in a way that like including them in the decision no. it's just i'm going to come here and i'm going to decide for you and your life will be great thank you very much yes yeah, yeah. and without any kind of idea of like well you know if they lose their place at hogwarts where are they going to go what's going to happen to them and even when she sees what has happened to winky it doesn't stop her it's it's a very very uncomfortable thing for me to read and it's also presented again like harry's perspective it's presented quite uncritically yes. there's no it's not like she is an example of a bad feminist in fact her activism isn't really taken very seriously by anybody including the narrator like there's no yeah, yeah. so yeah it is uncomfortable but speaking about the cost of education at hogwarts i just wanted to slightly shift to discussing the class implications of public scholarship yes. so specifically how alternative sites can act as sites of education and politicization so in hogwarts dumbledore's army provided that space where they were you know resisting umbridge and so teaching yeah. themselves defense against the dark arts and fudge was really afraid that dumbledore was radicalizing the youth and yeah. in the real world the internet in general and fandom and fan podcasts in particular can act as spaces of education at least i found that in my experience i've learned a lot in these informal digital spaces and this seems pertinent given that we're in the middle of these university strikes in the uk one of the things on sort of a, as a side note is how bad the education is at hogwarts <laughs> yes. so it's interesting that the school is sort of the only school that we know about in Britain and yet it is so bad and the only good examples of teaching that we see are by Lupin who is probably sacked because he's a werewolf yeah but he is a good teacher he's very encouraging 
the lessons that are described have logical progress. There's a clear outcome. He assesses them, the students, and he gives positive and encouraging feedback to them. And the other one is Harry. Hmm. Uh, Harry as a teacher, we see him growing in his pedagogical understanding. We see him planning his lessons and it is peer to peer. And, uh, you know, he has a lot of peer to peer learning uh, in the lessons that he gives the students and thinks about who will work well with who, who will encourage who. And the students really learn from him. And there are also examples of alternative peer-to-peer education because Hermione is in the role of a teacher a lot. Yeah. She's a good teacher. She, she does teach Ron and and Harry. And we know that because she's often told off for helping Neville that, that yeah. she is involved in peer education with Neville. But yeah, yeah one of the very powerful examples of learning within the books are from you know the outsider teacher and from peer-to-peer education i think like this bad teaching in hogwarts as you said it's the only school in the uk and especially for students from muggle-born families yes there it's at such a distinct disadvantage like students from visiting families they have the skills or are they assumed to have some skills and knowledge or even if you have bad teaching in Hogwarts it doesn't matter because your parents can probably you know make up the difference yeah you'll get a job at the ministry of magic anyway yeah yeah yeah. or you know you can just like have a wealth and you'll have a house and that's fine you'll have all this inherited wealth and objects and it's so similar to real life educational institutions as well like where children from families that are uh that have these class markers and status and the knowledge to you know like reading for example just reading to children it gives so many benefits but yeah. not everybody can do this because not everyone knows to do this or not everyone has the time to do this because if you're working all the time and you really don't have time to do this extra thing because you're cooking or whatever yeah and the, and the confidence as well the yeah confidence to know what to do in order to help your child particularly parents who had a poor educational experience themselves, then they don't necessarily know how to help their children with homework. Parents who who aren't confident in in maths, for example, won't have a clue how to support their children with the maths homework. Um, Yeah, for sure. And also critical thinking. But in India, mainstream education doesn't really teach you how to think. It teaches you what to think and it teaches you to learn the answers by heart and yeah. parrot them out in the in the exam. So you have no contextual knowledge. You can't apply the knowledge that you learned to any situation, mm-hmm. and even in terms of history. And it's just, I think a lot of the problems that we're facing now are due to a lack of education and not questioning what you're told. But yeah. for me, I found so much liberation online in the internet and podcasts and fandom Uh, Hannah McGregor from which please says that it's this form of accessible scholarship like she positions her podcast as making feminist scholarship accessible in a way using Harry Potter and making it relevant to people's lives and not just in this ivory tower talking amongst Mm. themselves and I find that so 
empowering because that's been my experience with uh, knowledge just because from my background i wouldn't have had this knowledge otherwise and that's why for me i love doing this as a part of my phd research project because i had this perception of academia as well as that they only talk amongst themselves and don't engage with people and what people like and for me fandom and the internet has been such a fantastic educational resource that's free largely you still have barriers because you still need access to technology uh, and language and time and you know to be able to play around with these things but if you have that it makes it so much easier to be able to get this information and knowledge even if you don't have a very good formal education or even if you don't have formal education yeah i agree with you one of the things that i found very exciting with working with children in school because i discuss the books with the children i work with mm. but they also create something so there is an outcome so either they make something or they draw something or we do some drama using these books and particularly using harry potter and the other books i've been reading with the children uh, to interrogate their understanding of social class and class markers within the books mm. has been really exciting and really interesting and the way that the children have really taken to to doing these things has, has made me think a lot about my pedagogy and the way that I teach my students at university and the way that we can use creativity to draw out critical thinking in learners at all stages of their learning. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Or... Just because I think critical thinking and just exposure to knowledge and questioning authority and different ways of thinking is so important because so with the university strikes in the UK, it was my first experience of striking and just talking to people with um on the picket line about the condition in the UK higher education the mm. system and it was so shocking to me because again you know this colonized mind like in india we think the west has it all figured out and has it all sorted out so someone on the picket line was telling me about how this neoliberal university where essentially students consider themselves to be consumers rather than learners again in the which please episode they uh, one of them said how in the real world governments and universities are using tuition and debt to de-radicalize students yes. so that young people don't get together to overthrow the status quo and to overthrow the system i, I think that's so true and uh, and the way that I haven't had this experience so much, but I, I know that I, I've heard from other colleagues in other who are lecturing in other disciplines, the way that students, some students almost seem to want to be taught to the test. They are asking, do I have to, is this going to be in the exam or am I going to have to write uh, an essay on this text? Mm. And, and therefore don't want to explore widely outside of what they are going to be graded on and that entirely comes from this neoliberal ideal of education as market and students as consumers and wanting to not challenge themselves or challenge anything because what they want at the end is their good grade that they can then go on 
and be part of a neoliberal market, um, sort of using their scholarship in employment. And it's yeah. profoundly sad. And so the lack of willingness to challenge received ideas and ask what is education for, what is my education for, is the way that we're going about this the best way. And of course, the way that students are asking that if their tuition fees are not going towards paying their lecturers, where are they going? What yeah. are they used for? And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, certainly in some universities, students seeing their lecturers striking while looking at a big new fancy building being built probably have the right to ask those questions. Yeah, absolutely. Because literally the lecturers and the admin staff, they're responsible for delivering this education to you. If they're not well paid, if they're worrying about having to work another job just to pay the bills. Like, is that what you want? Is that what you really want from your education? It's yeah, which is why I think fandom, there's so much potential there to be able to learn to question things that you regularly would take for granted for example like for me it has been fan podcasts but also fan fiction because I as a teenager I used to read and write Harry Potter fan fiction and in I learned so much there in terms of questioning things as questioning canon first of all and then just that took me to oh if canon can is not this set thing it's this it's dynamic and you know fans have a say in it maybe you know other things as well so just the dialogue and the conversations that fans have and fan fiction is such a huge uh I don't read a lot of fan fiction anymore but I know that it's played such a huge role in shaping what I think about the world just because it highlights marginalized perspectives that perspectives which are marginalized not only in canon but just in media and culture mainstream media and culture in general so uh, when did you first encounter fan fiction Uh, what what has your experience been I wrote fan fiction myself from a very young age before I really knew what fan fiction was and my fan fiction was school stories I wrote uh, Shallow School fan fiction, and I also wrote Antonia Forrest's fan fiction about her family, the Marlows. Oh. And, uh, and that's what I grew up doing, making my own stories, really. And also the way I played as a, a small child. My dad is a, a huge fantasy and science fiction fan as well. And so he read me all of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings books and the whole of the Narnia series before I went to secondary school. And so uh, I played out battle scenes from Lord of the Rings with my Barbies. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And my other boys, you know, my my Barbies were Hobbits. Uh, (laughs) I I always laugh a little bit uh, when... And this is, again, this is a gender thing in the way that boys' interests versus girls' interests are privileged. And that the assumption that girls who are playing with dolls are uh, reenacting feminine, traditional femininity. And firstly, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with being feminine? Just because girls like, you know, and, uh, you know, this is, again, a Hermione thing, just because Hermione wants to look pretty 
Or wow. just because Fleur is feminine and badass yeah. at the same time. Ginny is feminine and badass at the same time. You can be both. Yeah, you yeah. can be both. And and so, yeah, that that's sort of my fanfic, really, which is um, when I, I read the fanfiction, uh, A Wand with 16 Strings, mm-hmm. how I loved that because it was the Antonia Forrest characters in Hogwarts and it was so brilliant it's it's so perfect um, yeah, I just and just it. school stories in general like they play so I know a lot of these school stories like Mallory Tower Shiley School they have some problematic gender dynamics but when I was reading it when I was younger for me I didn't I glossed over that completely and I loved that girls were going on adventures, but were also yeah. having these domestic things and midnight feasts and sports and plays and like at the center of their stories, which I loved because I think yeah. that, that's and that's why it makes me so mad when fan fiction is denigrated by people because it is largely female dominated and it is largely like a lot of teenage girls writing fan fiction. And, you know, this whole thing of the Mary Sue as well. It just drives me crazy. Oh my goodness, yes. And as if you, when you read, you know, a lot of thrillers um, written by men for men, we can see the Mary Sue, well, the Marty Stew all over those. Yeah. We can, we can see the kind of sort of rugged and handsome uh, and incredibly clever and incredibly strong and always gets the girl hero. No, but even in that imaginary world episode that um I listened to, they like uh what's his name Luke Skywalker, Bruce <laughs> Wayne, Batman. How are they not like they call it Gary Stu's, but yeah, Marty Stu is good as well. Like how are they not this embodiment of like it's wish fulfillment? And men are so used to that being the norm that in fan fiction when women are trying to resist that and you know center their own perspectives and experiences like that's something to be mocked and that's something to be ridiculed and not taken seriously yeah and and anything that is of interest to girls is automatically considered to be of low quality and a bit silly yeah so if a teenage boy has his walls plastered with you know Led Zeppelin posters and again here I am showing my age (laughs) that's somehow okay because he's idolizing the you know the, the guitar playing and the lyricism and the musicality but when a girl a teenage girl like when I was a teenage girl I had Duran Duran and Adamant posters all over my bedroom wall but, you know, it would be assumed that I was doing that because I fancied them. Yeah. Which, yes, I did. <laughs> that wasn't the only reason. There was also that sense of camaraderie of being around other girls who shared my interests. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this is why I'm so happy that the archive of our own, they won the Hugo Award. It's such a fantastic space because it was started by largely women, female fans. And they coded, they, they had lawyers, they had writers, they designed the structure that they wanted in a way. So they had trigger warnings, they had spoiler warnings, they, they normalized all 
all this in the structure of their platform because they wanted to own their own platform and especially in a space like science fiction and fantasy i know we're running out of time but i do want to talk to you about just your experiences with that quickly just in terms of gender in offline fandom because i know you're more familiar with that than i am my experiences have largely been online fandom yeah what are the things that i think is has been evident for quite a long time in terms of gender and offline fandom is quite exactly what we've just been talking about it's the way that anything that is of interest to girls and women is assumed to not be of good quality anything that is of interest to men is assumed to be of amazing quality and um for everybody it's a very very interesting perspective and i'm i'm delighted that that has been overturned because of the amount of women's writing that is being recognized in uh, and particularly i know you've discussed the term women of color the the way that you know black women and east asian women their writing has been recognized and disabled women actually yeah uh, within um the hugos in particular and that's been wonderful and that has to be because more people are engaging with the writing writing by women and it's not just seen as writing by women is not just writing for women it's writing for everybody in the way that writing by men has traditionally been seen as writing for everybody and of course within that we've got non-binary and lgbtq people's writing being valued far more than it ever has been and while you know there are reactionary groups springing up and claiming that this writing is only being recognized because it is by you know women and non-binary people well you know too bad those kind of ideas are now becoming in the minority i hope yeah and and i'm so happy about it so in the black girl nerds episode one of them proposed that the difference between male fandom and female fandom is that male fandom is about collecting merchandise and trivia and yeah. knowing the canon completely yeah. versus female fandom which is transforming the canon because yeah. often women are dissatisfied by the lack of nuanced and complex representations of oh. their identities i love that because that was another you know when i first joined fandom when I was in my 20s and had a really really bad experience uh, of it was that there was so much gatekeeping around you know these kind of almost like this these sphinx's riddles that you had to answer before you were allowed <laughs> the door of the, of the pub or wherever the meeting was and it was sort of testing this idea of testing like it's not enough that you say I like Batman you have to know the number of the comics that which number of the comics did the joker first appear in or where was uh, king tut from and it is so frustrating and so it's a bit like sort of those kind of trading card things you know you've got to everyone it's got to be one upmanship yeah i think around my women and non-binary friends conversations are not all about one-upmanship and about knowing the sort of niche bits of knowledge. 
Yeah, around. just loving a thing yeah, is enough. Just being passionate about it, and you know, yeah. just being excited about talking about talking to somebody about a thing that you love. That's enough. You don't have to prove yeah. that you're a real fan or you're a proper fan. And showing your connection to it, and that's so important. Which is where the transformative fandom comes from, because I think women and queer and non-binary people and trans people have always had to find the back door into the thing they loved so you know for example if you're watching star trek for example which is where of course transformative fandom many would say started Mm -hmm. it was a very male dominated space so you had to find your way into it and i did love original star trek but i my star trek enjoyment of fandom came through much more um deep space nine where there was a much wider variety of people and my the person i saw in doctor who fandom was always the companion yeah my my doctor was, was tom baker and my companion was sarah jane smith who was a brilliant character you know she's feminist she's not there just to scream and fall over. She was the person that often suggested different ideas to the doctor and different ways of looking at things to the doctor. And I loved Sarah Jane. And it was really through her that I became a Doctor Who fan. I mean, I was watching Doctor Who when I was six, seven, eight. You know, I was a very small child. And Sarah Jane has always been the person who stayed with me no and that's uh, why I'm so excited that Jodie is now the doctor because yeah. my doctor who journey started with new who so I only started with Christopher Eccleston and I loved it but I loved it in a way that I didn't really see myself in it even when there were yeah. the companions and things I was like oh yeah this is fun this is an adventure but ever since Jodie's run I've noticed that there's this sort of very deliberate increase in the diversity just even casual diversity as well as the companions and I love Jodie's interactions as well like I feel like they're not they're not trying to just make her a man in a woman's body you know they, they, yeah. she's emotional and enthusiastic and has relationships and it's I identify so much with her and with the companions and just with the stories now that yeah. the, she is my doctor even though I love all the doctors that I've met but she's definitely my yeah. doctor well I loved I loved Rose when New, New Who started but actually um Donna was yeah. I, I, I in Donna Absolutely. And you know, a bit older, she's, you know, she was a working class girl and, you know, she, I, I loved the way she was very down to earth and not always overly impressed with the doctor. Yeah. Rose often was. And then, you know. And it you, wasn't about a romantic relationship, no. which usually you always need to have a, someone fall in love with someone for it to, yeah. their presence as a woman to count. Yes, there was much more of a buddy relationship, a collegial relationship. And I really appreciated that. Do you have any final thoughts that you sort of wanted to say or? I do want to acknowledge the problematic and frankly transphobic nature of a lot of what J.K. Rowling has said at the moment. And the transformative works aspect of Potter fandom is something that continues to give me joy and I do think that it is now Harry Potter's ours he belongs to the fans 
I'm not so sure about the Fantastic Beasts aspect, although my stepson loves Fantastic Beasts. He loves Newt Scamander. I see a lot of my stepson in Newt as a neurodiverse child. Yeah. Uh, so I do love that. So I sort of did want to acknowledge that there are other amazing books for children and young adults around at the moment that if people feel uncomfortable still reading Harry Potter then I suggest they look at Patrick Ness's The Rest of Us Just Live Here which is a brilliant book. Uh, Also I'm reading at the moment Scarlett Thomas's Dragon's Green and um, other books in that series. Also I love although I acknowledge that some people have been very critical of Rebecca Rowanhorse, but I love her book, Trail of Lightning. So there are other things out there that people can uh, look for and enjoy. Thank you for the excellent recommendations. I'm just going to add a book that I uh, just finished reading yesterday. It's called Nevermore, The Trials of Morgan Crow yeah. uh, by Jessica Townsend. And I love it because it's sort of like Harry Potter, but also uh, Jupiter North is very much gives me a doctor energy. So yeah. it's like a combination of two of my favorite things. And it's much more explicitly diverse. Like I don't have to race bend or I don't have to uh, contend with just seeing white as, you know, yeah. protagonist. So I love that. And oh. I absolutely agree with you. I think JK Rowling, I've lost the feeling of affection that I used to have yeah. for her. And it's been happening for quite a few years. But this completely like you know I've completely disconnected from her but the series itself it was my you know it it was something that really saved me during a very difficult childhood and yeah. it's something that's given me so much that I still love the books and like you said I think it be- they belong to us we don't have to like her we don't have to we don't have to agree with anything that she says um they belong to us because she's put it out there and it's changed so many people's lives but also I'm glad you recommended other books as well because there are more inclusive more progressive books out there and to quote someone on a podcast that we listen to who quoted Sam Winchester from Supernatural at the end of the day it's our story so we get to write it which I think is a very good fandom encapsulation and just yeah it's a good way to think of Potterverse. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and for the company. This was amazing. I'm so glad I got to chat with you. I'm Um, so glad you asked me. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. listening to our episode on social class in Harry Potter and gender in fandom. You can listen to the first three episodes of Marginally Fanish wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks again, Alison, for being a part of this project and allowing me to think about the world through the lenses of both class and gender. And thank you, Jack, for doing a stellar job with the editing even though the audio quality was sometimes terrible.